0: me invite you uh, to open up your Bibles, if you brought one along this morning, or if not, you can grab the one in your pew in front of you. Turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Mark, chapter 2. Pete's given us a helpful introduction this morning. We're going to be uh, thinking about another Jesus story. We don't have a, a personal testimony this week. We have a few lined up in the weeks ahead. But we do have another passage where Jesus is encountering um, actually a few different individuals. And this morning, he's going to be exploring the intersection of where rules and people meet. Rules and real life. How do those things fit together? I wonder how you personally feel about rules. What's your relationship with rules? Some of you, maybe rules are your happy place, right? Rules give structure and, and sort of show you where the boundaries are, and, and you seek them out. Maybe some of you have a, a, a more complicated relationship with rules. <laughs> they make you frustrated or angry. I, uh, in, in preparing for this week, week's message, I came across a, a writer named Gretchen Rubin. She's a popular author. I'm um, writing books today. And she talks about four categories of, of people in terms of how they, they do or do not play by the rules, how they feel about rules. She, she asks us to think first about two different types of rules or categories. She talks about external rules and internal rules. An external rule is a rule someone else makes for you and expects you to keep, like the speed limit. Internal rules are rules you create for yourself, and you expect yourself to keep, like a New Year's resolution or a particular diet you've decided to adopt. And so depending on how you think about both external and internal rules, you might fall in one of these four categories. If you're the kind of person that Puts pressure on yourself to keep both external and internal rules. Ruben calls you an upholder. Right? The most important thing is to, to keep all the rules in place. If you're more the type of person that focuses on the rules others have made for you to make sure you, you check the boxes and satisfy those expectations, but you don't particularly look to, to create sort of internal rules to live by, She says, you might be an obliger. If you are more the kind of person that has a strong sense of internal conviction and justice, and you use that internal sense of of what's right and wrong to sort of decide selectively which rules you're going to keep and which rules you should break, you might be called a questioner. And if you just plain think rules are a bad idea, internal or external they're there to be broken then she labels that kind of person a rebel so i want to give you 30 seconds i want you to turn to somebody next to you and tell them which of these four categories do you you know best describes your relationship with rules all right 30 seconds go all right we're going to we're going to bring it back together here by show of hands if you feel comfortable how many upholders do we have out there All right, how many obligers do we have? Any obligers, all right. How many questioners do we have? Uh Uh-oh, these are the risky, no, just kidding. And how many rebels, any rebels, any? All right, there we go. Those are the really risky people to sit next to, so just keep that in mind next Sunday. I I personally lean toward the upholder category, which maybe doesn't surprise you as a pastor. Um, That's a, a good stereotype for us. By and large, Christians, at least in, in our culture, have a reputation for being people sort of fixated on rules, sticklers about rules. Right? We, here at JCC, every month we recite the Ten Commandments. As a group, culturally, sometimes we're known for expressing our convictions about um, various moral or social issues. Even in, in informal ways, you know, in social settings, when people talking to discover I'm a pastor, sometimes I feel like they're suddenly reviewing the last five minutes of our conversation to see, like, did I say anything that I shouldn't have, or did I swear what happened, you know? Like they're going to, to step into, you know, my, my rule, my, my world of rules, and, and, and that I might take offense to that, something they said or did. What do we, what do, we do with that, if, if that is our reputation, being people concerned with the rules? Is that helpful? Is it justified? What about everybody else in our world? There is a a line in a Wallace Stegner novel. I don't know if you've ever read any of his books. He's one of the most uh, significant American novelists in the 20th century. He actually spent summers up in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont um, on Caspian Lake. But in one of his books, one of his characters says this about rules. We say, it is the beginning of wisdom to recognize that the best you can do is to choose which rules you want to live by. But it's persistent and aggravated imbecility to pretend you can live without any. Right? It's the beginning of wisdom to choose which rules you want to live by. If that's true, if there's something to that idea, then, then Christians aren't the only people Attempting to live with rules or by rules. Right? The question is more concerned about whose rules are they? Right? Which rules are we choosing? Here at JCC, one of our core values is about following Jesus into, deeper into a life of discipleship. Right? To learn from Jesus how we're to live. And if, if that's one of our, our greatest desires, then it begs the question... What does Jesus say, but also how does Jesus feel about, what does he have to say about the rules of life? So I want to think about that as we look at two stories that are back-to-back in Mark chapter 2. So we open up to that passage, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you that you have the words of life. Thank you That is Psalm 19 says, um, the, law, the law that you possess, the law that you have given is perfect. It revives the soul. It gives wisdom to the simple. It gives light to our eyes. That your way and your word is sweeter than honey upon our lips when we, when we understand it rightly, and when we walk in it. So Lord, we pray as, as we think about it and seek to live in a way that gives life according to your way. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach this morning, may the meditations, may the convictions of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So we're in Mark, chapter 2, verse 23 and following, and we're, we're really at the beginning of Mark's gospel here, if we take um, a moment to, to locate our context. Despite only being partway into chapter 2 of this gospel, there's already a lot that's taken place. Jesus has already drawn considerable attention to himself in Galilee, and he's become noted for his teaching. He's become noted for his healings, and he's also become noted for keeping company with a rough crowd of people, with sinners. And that has earned Jesus a certain reputation already in this gospel. And he's he's drawn the suspicions of the Pharisees and the sort of rule keepers of Israel, who feel that in the things Jesus is choosing to do, and even some of the things he's saying, Jesus isn't paying enough attention to the law, to the rules of engagement that that they believe God has given them. Jesus has has developed this reputation for being a rebel, a rule breaker. I think in the next two stories, the question is, is is that reputation, is that label justified? What does Jesus think about the rules? first story is in verse 23 uh, through the end of the chapter, verse 28. It says, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jump ahead here. Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did? when he and his companions were hungry and in need. In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, So the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, which Jesus referred to himself by, so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. We get a story here about how rules and real people fit together. It's a a story about interpretation at some level. And the the setting is that one Saturday morning or afternoon, Jesus and his disciples are en route somewhere, right? Probably not going far because on the Sabbath day you, you could only travel a certain distance according to the rules, according to the law. Maybe they were on the way to synagogue, maybe they were visiting someone nearby, but they didn't think ahead enough to bring snacks along for the journey, right? It's a problem. And so they, they're getting hungry on their way there. It's not a major crisis. They're not going to starve to death. But this is the Sabbath day. It's the one day in the week they have to rest. And here they are with nothing to eat. Their stomachs are growling. Even today, if you were to travel to Israel and you would would be en route somewhere on a Friday evening or a Saturday morning, you would be hard-pressed to find any place open to sell you something to eat. You've got to plan ahead. And so, what did the disciples do with their hunger? Right? Well, in Jesus' day, they didn't need a 7-Eleven to be open. They just see a nearby grain field. And they notice that it's harvest time. There are ripe heads for plucking. And so, they, they start to grab a few handfuls to munch on as they go. No harm in that, right? Deuteronomy 23 which is, is part of the law, part of the rules, clearly states, if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick your neighbor's kernels of wheat with your hands, which is what they're doing. The rest of that command goes on to say, just don't get out a sickle and start you know, taking whole sheaves of grain home with you. So they've gotten their snacks, they're, they're feeding their appetites a little bit, no harm done. But while the, the grain is still being chewed in their mouths, suddenly a Pharisee pops up in the middle of a grain field. We don't know why he's there, right? Is this a stakeout? It's a little fishy. And it seems like he is one of, if we were to categorize those, those four things we looked at earlier, right? Probably an upholder here. And he swoops in to write them up for violating the Sabbath day. And he says that uh, in the passage here, verse 24, what they're doing is unlawful on the Sabbath. Well, he doesn't say why, but probably his interpretation is this. He, He sees the act of plucking grain as harvesting. And harvesting, according to the law, was considered work, and work was forbidden on the Sabbath day. So therefore, what they are doing in his book is unlawful. So in verse 24, he says to Jesus, he sort of goes to the the, the top guy, their teacher, their rabbi, and he says, Jesus, what gives here? Why don't your disciples keep our rules? Now, Jesus has a a few options in response to, to this accusation about he and his disciples, right? Number one. He could back off. He could, he could become an upholder. He could say, my, my bad, my bad, guys. Hey, I forgot about the rules. Let's not cause any trouble. Guys, spit that out. Let's keep going, OK? Just wait till we get wherever we need to go. Right? He could, he could be an upholder, or at the very least an obliger. Number two, he could go 180 degrees the opposite direction, and he could choose to be a rebel. He could say, rules? We don't need rules. All right, guys, hey, let's go steal some scythes out of the shed over there. Let's, let's harvest this whole field on the Sabbath day just for fun. Steal it all and take it home. All right? then Jesus really would be a rebel. But the third option which Jesus pursues here is that he probes a little deeper, deeper and he, he questions the Pharisees' rule. And he asks, you know, what's, what's behind it? What's underneath This this motivation. Look at verse twenty-five and following. What Jesus says, Jesus asks him a question by by way of pointing to a different passage of Scripture. He says, "Did you ever read that story about King David? You know, the guy that you think is the the sort of prototype for the Messiah that's going to come someday? Remember how he and his friends were really hungry one day, and they actually went to the tabernacle, and they." Ask the priest to give them bread that only the priests could eat. Right? It was in it was in the law. How come the high priest didn't lecture David about that request for bread? How come David is not condemned? In fact, he's immortalized as a hero in our scriptures, in our tradition. Right? What what gives here? I think in verse 27, then then Jesus makes a few statements, but I think those statements raise questions for us, right? He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Which I think is is Jesus' way of saying, what if God's rules, God's law, what if it was given to take care of people? rather than people being created to take care of God's rules. One of my old professors in seminary used to, used to say the Pharisees had their creation story wrong. Right? Was it, was it that in the beginning God created the law and then he thought, who's going to keep the law? Let me create some people to, to make sure I you know, get all these rules checked off. Or did he create people in his image and then give his law to those people to keep them and to bring life? to them, right? Which one is it? If rules are meant to keep people, then the Sabbath day is meant to be a gift to those made in God's image, right? It's it's meant to keep them. It's meant to bring them into the rest of God, into the goodness of his creation, into the fullness of his life. The Sabbath is not an obligation. God needs us to fulfill. If we thought about rules and laws in this way, would it, would it change how we, we think about how they fit together with real people, real circumstances and situations? A few weeks ago, Pete and I uh, drove down to southern or central Vermont to a little town called Chester to visit a a pastor friend of ours who's uh, trying to replant a church congregation in the town of Chester. Chester, like many villages or towns in Vermont, doesn't have a a, a large church-going population. And so they they have a historic building like ours. Their, Their church is a congregational church. When the town of Chester was planted in the mid 1700s, that church came into being. But over the centuries, right, things have changed, and a couple years ago, that church uh, came to the place where they only had you know, eight or ten people that were still part of, of the congregation. And so they stopped meeting for weekly worship. And a few years after that, they found some resources and invited our friend John and his, his family to move into that community with the, the aim to build relationships with people and to see if, if a new church could be planted again. We've talked to John a few times since then, and I know it's it's pretty slow going. It's hard to to break into a small town and get to know people and to earn their trust. But he said about a year ago, someone he had gotten to know approached him, and he said, what if we used, could we use your historic 18th century congregational church sanctuary to play cornhole? (laughs) And he was like, what? And this guy had a cornhole league, I guess when you live in Chester, Vermont, there's not a lot to do in the winter, and so people play cornhole. And they needed a place to play, and so he said, well, our church is just sitting here empty all year, why not, right, where's the harm in that? And the next thing you know, 50, 60, 70 people every week were turning up in their church sanctuary to throw beanbags at each other, right, play cornhole. We were there to, to meet with John and pray with him a couple weeks ago, and he said up to, up to now, more than 500 people have visited their church to play cornhole. And along the way, John's gotten to know quite a few people in the community and, and make friends and build relationships, which was the goal from the beginning. Maybe, maybe it's surprising, maybe it isn't surprising to us that as people started turning up in larger numbers to play cornhole at this church, some Christians swooped in with their concerns. Aren't you desecrating God's church by playing cornhole in the sanctuary? Are you allowed to move the pews out to the side of the, the building? Is that okay? Right? You're not playing by the rules. Don't you know what churches are for, what sanctuaries are for? And he's actually had resistance rather than people coming alongside of him in his community. But I wonder, right, given this passage, right? what would Jesus say in that scenario? What, what would his thoughts be? How would he answer the question, what are sanctuaries for? Who is welcome inside of them? What's meant to happen once you're in them? Well, maybe... Another Jesus story could give us insight into those questions because in Mark chapter 3, the very next passage is a story about Jesus in a sanctuary, in a synagogue on the Sabbath day. Mark 3 verse 1 through 6 says this. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, into a sanctuary, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of those gathered were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone else. If I were that guy, I'd be a little nervous. What's going to happen? Then Jesus looked to those gathered and said to them, Which is lawful? on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out, and they began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. We get another story about rules and people. In comparison, the first rule-keeping story that we just looked at is kind of minor. It's about something relatively insignificant, right? It's a story about snack food. Second story, though, takes things up several notches, both in the level of suspicion involved here. Right? You might even say entrapment. They're they're looking to get Jesus. It's a sting operation. But also, things are more significant here because the person who's caught in the crossfire here is a real person who is experiencing real suffering. Right? The, the passage refers to him as a man with a withered hand, probably through some damage either to his nerves or the muscles in his hand, whether it was an injury or a disease. Right? His hand has atrophied to the point that it looks like it's, it's shriveled up. It's smaller than normal and unusable. According to, to other writings uh, that were popularized in the early church about, about this story, uh, this man was said to be a plasterer, a laborer, who needed both of his hands to work, to earn food for his family. And so he, he was not only paralyzed in his arm, but he was, he was prevented from, from taking care of the needs of people that he loved because of his condition. And so everybody there, right, the, the passage is pretty clear, everybody knows who this guy is, everybody knows what his situation is. Everyone agrees on that. And everybody gathered also knows that there's someone in the sanctuary, in the synagogue that morning with a reputation for healing, right? That's also a universally acknowledged reality that day. Here's a guy with an issue and a guy known to take care of issues. What they differ on is how those two things should mix, particularly in the synagogue on a Sabbath day. What do the rules say? And Jesus steps into that situation and he knows exactly what's going on. And Jesus doesn't waste any time naming the elephant in the room. And in fact, Jesus sort of provokes it. He walks right up to the man. He looks at him and, and he says, basically, since everybody's already looking at us, why don't we just stand up to give everybody a better look at what's about to happen? Right? Stand up. And Jesus says, since, since you're all wondering about what, what's going to happen here, let's talk about it before it happens. Jesus' question here is, what's the law-keeping thing to do? Is it to do this man good or to do him evil on the Sabbath? Is it to save his life or to take his life and his family's life away from him? And I think Jesus is pointing to what fulfills, what is lawful? What fulfills the rules or the commands God has given us? That's an important question. I think Jesus asks us that because he knows all of us inevitably confront these kinds of situations, religious or otherwise, where we are confronted with with rules in the abstract, but then, then we bring them together with real human beings, real circumstances. And we have to ask, how do we fulfill God's commands with this person, right here, in this moment? What does it mean to obey the law? The Pharisees... Sounds like before they even showed up, had their own answer to that question. Right? In, the, in their zeal to guard the holiness of Sabbath day and the law, which, which was a good thing. Right? Sometimes we just paint the Pharisees with one brush stroke. Right? Th- there is a, a rightness about their desire to honor God. But the application takes them into some un- 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 unhelpful places. Right? Their thought was the lawful thing to do here is to delay this man's healing for a different time, different place. Jesus, save that stuff for a place that's not so holy, for a day that's not set apart. Jesus, don't you know what synagogues, don't you know what Sabbath days are for? Right? This is what they're thinking but they're also hoping to sidestep Jesus' question. And so the passage says when Jesus asks them this question, they remained silent. Verse 5, Jesus sees their silence. And he he perceives the situation and what's happening. And says he he looks them in the eyes, but he also, I think, looks them in the heart. And it says what he sees. Causes him to be deeply distressed. Right. Grieved that a room full of people. Who, who were eager to speak about the glory of God's law on the Sabbath day. Would condemn someone for speaking the glory of divine healing. Over a man made in God's image. Right. How has the law Become something that will take life away instead of give it and so Jesus knowing that it would be seen as an act of provocation and right, he turns away from the crowd and he looks now to the man himself and he looks into his eyes and he says stretch out your withered hand extend it into wholeness Jesus chooses to make the Sabbath day, a day for reordering, a day for restoring, a day for renewing creation to its wholeness. Jesus knows that that it's a day to celebrate God's healing power, not to outlaw it. Jesus says, this is how you fulfill the Sabbath. And the great irony, of course, is that the Pharisees who are so concerned about not doing the work of healing, of, of, of guarding and, and keeping the law of God sacred on that holy day, they now turn God's law into a weapon. And they go out from the synagogue, and on the holiest day of the week, they work together with their sworn enemies, the Herodians, to fight against their enemy, Jesus. To put him to death. Their minds are occupied with murder on the Sabbath day. At the end of the day, I'm convinced that you can't find any story in the Gospels where Jesus violates the law of God. Or ever desecrates it. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5... Jesus goes up on a mountain, much like Moses, when he gave the law in Exodus, God's law. And Jesus says this about himself in Matthew 5. He says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. And I am convinced that, that each of us need Jesus right, to be that interpreter, to be that fulfiller, to be the wisdom of God for us. So that when we, when we receive both the commands of God but also need to live them out with real people right? we're led to give life not take it away. That we would be people not crushed by the burden of God's commandments but become people who are kept by them and lifted up by them and led deeper into the life of our God. Let me pray for us as we We seek to do that together in this place. Lord Jesus, you you know that everyone gathered here comes to the rules from a different place. Some of us are naturally upholders. Some of us are obligers. Some of us are rebels. Some of us are questioners. Lord, what ultimately matters, though, is whether we come to you and whether we depend upon you to lead us in the way we are meant to go. Lord, would you teach us to love your law, but also to love your mercy, both for ourselves and for our neighbors. pray you would help us to grow and to follow you in all that we do. In your name we pray. Amen.